Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by Professor Ellen Davis the Amos Reagan Kearns Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke University, and is entitled, Bending the Silence. The title of my paper is Bending the Silence, Reading Psalms Through the Olives. What I'll be presenting in this half hour is approximately the first half of an essay treating a pair of lament Psalms, Psalm 38 and Psalm 42-43, with the aim of highlighting their distinctive value as religious literature, which I read by us. The Lament Psalms show a sustained potential for eliciting a response, for generating the involvement of those who repeat or pray them, for changing the conversation from the abstract and technocratic to something that is profoundly humane. If they can do that, it is because they are in most cases really good lyric poems. And lyric, as Katie Campbellfinger and others have noted, is characterized by its dialogical form, emotional depth and intensity, metaphorical richness, rhythmic concision, and because of all those, its memorability and quotability. In other words, its propensity for re-expression in various modes. Chip Dobbs Alsop says, lyric is uniquely re-utterable. Surely the rediscovery of lament in the 20th, uh, late 20th century, I would say, is one of the most pastorally and significantly, pastorally and liturgically significant developments within biblical studies in recent decades. In this presentation, I shall consider something of the theological aesthetics of lament by looking at Psalm 38 through the re-utterance of that psalm by the poet John Donne, quite possibly the greatest preacher of psalms in the English language. And secondly, through a piece of choreographed lament from Ecclesia Contemporary Garden. Implicit in my title, Bending the Silence, is a certain perspective on laments and on poetry altogether. Walter Brueggemann has recently written of poetry as the breaking, the art of breaking the silence, born of uncertainty and fear. Certainly, this psalm is one of many 
that indicate it is often not wise or safe to speak. I am like the mute who does not open his mouth. Verse 14. Nonetheless, I am not completely satisfied with Brueggemann's image of breaking silence. Rather, it seems to me that good poetry bends silence without rupturing it. Indeed, the rhythm that is constitutive of poetry is itself a delicate balance between utterance and silence. In Song's recitation, the importance of silence is observed in the monastic practice followed by some church traditions, the practice of pausing for a beat or two at the asterisk, so to speak, after the first colon. Again, John Brennan implies the importance of silence in explaining his own special love for the Psalms as preaching texts and for devotion. He relishes their, quote, cheerful forms, where all the words are numbered and measured and weighed. God speaks to us in orazione stricta, in a limited, in a diligent form, end quote. The crafted, deliberate form of the Psalms is the done a mark of divine solicitousness, that, so that we humans might take pleasure in the artful communication of God's word to us. Religion, Dunn says, is a serious thing, but not a sullen. The silence inherent to poetry is the chief quality whereby the songs of lament, of lament invite our engagement as readers, reciters, and re-articulators of the message. In its formal restraint, its refusal to disturb the silence from which it came to cite Wendell Berry, a good poem expresses regard both to those whom it addresses and for the mystery of life it seeks to illumine. Specifically, religious lyric treats the mystery of living in conscious relationship to the divine. And so God is the first addressee in most psalms and all the biblical laments. In this presentation, I highlight responses to lament by a poet, Preacher Dunn, and a dancer. Those who practice the arts of poetry, preaching, and dance must regularly reckon with the ineffable power of silence. Therefore, they may be more likely than what we might call unreconstructed scholars to intuit or focus on how this song how the psalm, precisely in its poetic form, creates a space conducive to human healing and wholeness. As ordered, probing verbal expressions, formulated in the first person, keenly attuned to a mixed audience composed of God and humans, 
and suggestive of multiple possibilities for meaning. The lament songs fostered the existential expression of an authentic self. The I of the lament songs is not an insistent, self-absorbed ego, but rather a true self, born of a crisis of the spirit, the generative condition for all personal lyric, as the contemporary American poet Gregory Orr observes. It is a self discovered and developed in community, a self reaching out to its audience through, through the highly flexible rhetorical structure of dialogue. The observation of W.R. Johnson concerning Greek lyric may be apt here. He argues that in lyric, the speaker discovers himself through, through speaking to and for another. And the art of discourse, quote, clarifies the speaker's personality. He learns who and what he is by yielding himself wholly to the act of discourse, by discoursing, describing, deliberating, he becomes himself. Further, a work of traditional art, such as a song, can never be a solo composition and performance. Again, citing Wendell Berry, any poem worth the name is the product of a convocation. A good, good poem exists, in Berry's words, at the center of a complex reminding to which it relates as both cause and effect, end quote. It marks a certain point in a long conversation. And every re-articulation that is not merely wrote, and I'm not sure even that qualification signifies much, because rote repetition shapes memory. Every re-articulation marks another moment in that conversation, which assumes new forms through countless generations. So let's begin with memory, as does the song itself. Mismore de David Lachanskir, a David song for reminding. Who knows what that exceptional superscription means? Lehazkir. Maybe this is a reference to an ancient melody to which the song was once sung. Or possibly the song was associated with a token of sacrifice, askaha, a portion that is both as Leviticus teaches as a reminder in lieu of turning an entire grain offering into smoke. Those possibilities may be historically plausible, but there is no particular evidence for either. More grounded in the song, and therefore more theologically promising, is the suggestion of Arthur Eisen and Robert Alton that the phrase carries a connotation of confession, 
calling sin to mind. That's the direction that Dunn moved several centuries before Lysen and Alton in a series of seven or more sermons preached on this song for remembrance, as Dunn called it, preached at Lincoln's Inn probably during the summer of 1618. Following St. Bernard and early Christian theologians, Dunn recognizes memory as one of three faculties of the soul that are indispensable for our knowledge of God. And it possibly takes precedence even over understanding and will. The art of salvation, Dunn says, is but the art of memory. All instruction which we can give you today is but the remembering to you of the mercies of God. End quote. When the psalmist, David Fudan, is, quote, locked up in a close prison of multiplied calamities, this turns the key, this opens the door, this restores him to liberty, if he can remember, end quote. What the psalmist remembers is himself. Quoting Dunn, but sometimes that's the hardest of all. Many times we are farthest off from ourselves, most forgetful of ourselves. End quote. Remembering myself accurately means seeing, in the authorized version of 1611, there is seeing that there is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. Psalm 38, verse 3 or 4 in English and Hebrew. Dunn's persistent emphasis on the realities of our sin and the multiple ways it hurts us sounds distinctly unfashionable to our generation of preachers and biblical interpreters, and we even have biblical wanted for avoiding it. As you know, the Psalms rarely acknowledge guilt, let alone dwell upon it, Psalm 51 except. But sometimes that is what we must do in order to remember ourselves and reclaim a relationship with God, as the psalmist says. Verse 16, For you, O Lord, I wait and hope. It is you who will answer, my Lord, my God. Some months ago, I was invited to offer a meditation at a gathering of healthcare professionals assembled to consider the opioid crisis that is ravaging my country. The day began, predictably, with PowerPoint. Maps and statistics showing the depressing metrics of the crisis. In, con <clears throat> in contrast to Dunn's description of religion, the mood in the room was serious and solemn, both. 
But then we turned to a reading of Psalm 38, and something changed. Through the 22 lines of that quasi-alphabetic poem, we could hear human voices. Nurses, doctors, and medical social workers heard the voices of their patients, their clients, their neighbors, crying out the guilt and alienation from God that often attend addiction. Crying out the unremitting psychic, physical, and social pain that now defines their existence. Psalm 38, beginning at verse 5. For my iniquities have mounted over my head. They are like a heavy burden, too heavy for me. My sores stink, they fester because of my folly. I am bent, bowed very low. All day long I go about in mourning. For my loins are filled with burning, there is no help in my body. I am numb and utterly crushed. I roar from the growling of my heart. Lord, all my longing is before you, and my groaning is not hidden from you. My heart palpitates, my strength forsakes me, and the light of my eyes, that too is absent from me. My intimates and companions stand distant from my plague, and my own kin stand far away. Those who seek my life take aim. They who wish me harm speak violence, and deceit they murmur all day long. In our society, the pretensions of technocracy and professionalism may discourage us from using language adequate to the enormity of suffering. We seek to, quote, manage pain and contain damage. The very terms in which we speak may beguile us into denial of how much is beyond our comprehension and control. The intellectual intellectualization of pain is not a purely modern phenomenon. It may be the temptation of the highly educated in every age. And so Dunn cautioned the barristers and the law stu students of Lincoln's Inn against learning patience and affliction from, quote, the stupidity of philosophers who are but their own stat statues, men of silence, men of stone without sense, without affections, that no pain should make them say they were in pain. End quote. However, the Bible in both Testaments does not shy away from the persistent realities of pain, human weakness, and sin. Nor do liturgical and literary traditions that are well shaped by the difficult witness. I would consider liturgy itself to be a poetic art form. Accordingly, <clears throat> Wendell Berry, uh, writing of a, a contemporary poem, 
Daniel Davies' advent, Barry considers how that poem is shaped within what he calls a pattern of reminding, which he identifies as the Judeo-Christian tradition that facilitates the expression of authentic feeling, although its message is not innovative. Likewise, the preacher Dunn consistently and in varied ways traces a pattern of reminding that stretches through the story of salvation for him from Adam to Christ. Thus, he directs his congregation in applying that pattern to their own personal histories. Study all the history and write all the progress of the Holy Ghost in thyself. Hide nothing from God, neither the diseases thou wast in, nor the degrees of health that thou wilt come to, nor the ways of thy failing or rising. For Dominus Faker, at Eret Mirabile, the Lord made it, and it will be mindless. Psalm 118. If I mistake not the measure of thy conscience, thou wilt find an infinite comfort in this particular tracing of the Holy Ghost and his working in thy soul. End quote. How then does lament lead to comfort, at least in some measure? In a suggestive study, Poetry as Survival. Gregory Orr identifies the survival function of the personal lyric as, quote, helping us express and regulate our emotional lives, which are confusing and sometimes opaque to us, end quote. Awareness of the chaotic in ourselves and in the world generates what Orr calls a spontaneous ordering response, an innate faculty possessed by everyone. And so he says, why not call it imagination and recognize it as a fundamentally human cognitive capacity? The story of Orr's own discovery of poetry as a lifeline offers insight into the kind of crisis that might generate a lyric poem, including a lament song. This is a long quote. When I was 12 years old, I was responsible for a hunting accident in which my younger brother died. At the time, a friend of the family counseled me that my brother's death was all part of God's plan, which was necessarily inscrutable to us on earth. This notion of a divine order that had the power to subsume such violent disorder didn't seem believable to me and failed to help me live through the traumatic crisis that had become my life. At the time of my brother's death, no one proposed philosophical attitudes to me, but had they done so, 
I doubt I would have gained any consolation or understanding from them. Recall Dunn's reference to the stupidity of stony philosophers. Continuing or I lived for about four years after my brother's death without any hope at all. Nothing that I found in my culture sustained me. Then next to Mrs. Irving, the librarian and teacher of a small honors English class in my small public state school, I discovered poetry. I wrote a poem one day, and it changed my life. I have a sudden sense that the language and poetry was magical, that it could create or transform reality rather than simply describe it. That first poem liberated the enormous energy of my despair and oppression as nothing before had ever done. I felt simultaneously revealed to myself and free of myself. I should say this is his own poem now that he's written. I felt simultaneously revealed to myself and free of myself by the images and actions of the poem. I knew that if I was to survive in this life, it would only be through the help of poetry. Or is describing a mystery, the revelatory experience of hope and pleasure that derives from the patterned language of the personal lyric poem. In its fidelity, fidelity to embodied being, the personal lyric is distinct from both philosophy and religion, as Moore says, those two viewed as abstractions. He goes on, the personal lyric says to the self in its suffering, I will not abandon you, nor will I ask you to abandon yourself and the felt truth and particulars of your experience, end quote. It is no small part of the mystery that the poem does not need to include explicitly comfortable words in order to conduce to hope. Witness Cesar Vallejo's prose poem, an unrelieved lament that concludes with the words, Today I'm suffering, come what may. Sukeo lo que sukeo. Today I simply suffer. The title of Galeno's poem is I am going to speak of hope. If Psalm 38 speaks of hope, it does not do so overtly like Indeed, it lacks the two most hope-filled elements of typical Israelite lament songs, as we've discussed. The expression of confidence that God has heard the prayer and will act, and the vow to offer praise when God has brought deliverance. Neither appears. Yet Dunn reads the psalm toward salvation. It is for him a model for the healing of the self in relation to God. And the experience of judgment 
is the correction necessary for our soul's health. The key to Dunn's reading is the thoroughly theocentric and biological character of the song. Every word of petition, complaint, and accusation, every word is directed straight to God. Your arrows have descended on me, says the psalmist, and upon me your hand has descended. Verse 3. Far from the reason to despair of God, Dunn reads that accusation as the warrant so to find God's Second, Consider all the arrows of tribulation, even of temptation and temptation, to be directed by the hand of God, and never doubt to fight it out with God, to lay violent hands upon heaven, to wrestle with God for a blessing, to charge and press God upon his contracts and promises. For in Umbra Putnavis, you will fight in the shade, though the clouds of these arrows may hide all suns of worldly comforts from thee, yet thou art still under the shadow of his wings. Second Psalm 63. Further, Dan reads Psalm 38 around Christ. In the final sermon of his series, he hears it as Jesus' own prayer in Gethsemane and the Cross. The psalm's confession of guilt, yes, I declare my iniquity, verse 19, this is no hindrance to God's Christological reading. For Christ assumed every element of our humanity. Quoting Dunn, as my mortality and my hunger and thirst and weariness and all my natural infirmities are his, so my sins are his sins. End quote. Christ assumes the burden of our sins, but he does not thereby leave us unburdened. He lays on us instead and puts it two for one, imposing the double burden of repentance. That's that sin which was forgotten with pleasure must now be remembered with contrition. The double burden of repentance and thankfulness to God. And this is the source of endless comfort that, quote, all my sins shall no more hinder my ascending into heaven, nor my sitting at the right hand of God in my own person, than they hindered him, who bore them all in his person, my only Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, blessed forever. That is a very high doctrine of the resurrection. We entered Psalm 38 through Dunn's brilliant homiletical reading. We shall depart by another way, an interpretation through contemporary dance. 
Several years ago, I began working with Ecclesia Contemporary Ballet Company in Connecticut on interpreting scripture and particularly the Psalms. Being non-verbal, dance does not lend itself to close exegesis. But we are discovering that it fosters rich theological interpretation. It seems to be an especially effective vehicle for interpreting poetry. The intense physicality and visuality of dance capture the poem's images and sensuality. Its resonant silence is suggestive of multiple dimensions of meaning, multiple occasions of application. So, for example, the short piece you are about to see, entitled Lament, and choreographed by Alyssa Schroeder, was initially created as part of a long ballet that follows the biblical story from creation to new creation, from Genesis to the book of Revelation. In that context, Lament depicted Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. However, it also functions as a freestanding piece. This solo is a dialogue with God, such as is found in Psalm 38. As you will see, the dancer Peter Van Eeklin repeatedly returns to the ground, evoking the descending pressure of God's hand, or the weight of sin itself. For my iniquities have mounted over my head, they are like a heavy burden, too heavy for me. Psalm 38, verses 3 and 5. So watch the two contrasting movements here, vertical and horizontal. The dance ends with a movement of acknowledgement and upraised arm, and at the same time shows a slow, deliberate, and pained submission to God, expressed in a slow, backward hinge movement and eventual collapse. Thus the dance ends, as does the song, without fall of resolution. As we've discussed, the absence of any external resolution is typical even of the men songs that make a stronger move in the direction of praise than the Psalm 38. The lack of resolution is apt also to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane and to much of our own experience. When done, applied that psalm to Jesus' agony in the final sermon of his series, he observed. The Father was always with him, and is with us, but our deliverance is in his time, God's time, and not in ours. My presentation ends with this video.